Gemara Nivomis tells us that Rabbi Kiva had 12,000 pairs of Talmidim. 24,000 students, they covered the length, the breadth of Eretz Yisrael. Mechula Mesu, they all died in one parak in one short amount of time. Vahaya Olem Shomim, the world was desolate. The best of the best, the finest of the finest died. And the world was empty, was desolate. Why is it that this happened? They didn't treat one another with covered. Finally, Rabbi Kiva, after, so to speak, picking up the pieces, brought together who was left. He brought together five Talmidim. He taught them, and they began the Masorah. And this is the concept of that we count during Svirah, even though Svirah Omer is counting the time till Shavuos, it's a beautiful, happy, anxiously awaiting time. It has a very real element of mourning because we mourn the death of the Talmidim of Rabbi Kiva. Now, as an observation, we as a nation have lived through many, many tragedies. Destructions, war, famines, pogroms. Think of a difficult situation we were in it. Think of a diabolical means for one man to kill another man who was used on the Jews. We've been gassed, clubbed, hanged, murdered, persecuted. We are no stranger to suffering. Yet very few events make it onto the Jewish calendar. Tisha B'Av makes it. <clears throat> Shabbat Sabbatamas makes it. But this event was so catastrophic that it made it onto the Jewish calendar until this day. Now, thousands of years later, we still we don't go to weddings, we don't shave, we don't listen to music because we mourn the death of Rabbi Kiva's students. And if you'd like to really sort of perceive what it was like, you have to imagine in our world, if the finest of the finest, imagine all the great yeshivas, Lakewood, Mir, Panovich, Chaim, <coughs> every great yeshiva, suddenly Rachman all the Tamidim died, the color younger light wiped out, the world would be desolate. That was a type of destruction, and that is <coughs> what we mourn now. But I'd like to share with you an interesting observation. When we think about that, we make the assumption, they didn't treat each other with honor. They must have been bores, rude, obnoxious. I mean, for Hashem to kill out the greatest, the finest of that generation, they must have been so crude and obnoxious. They must have been pushing, shoving, cursing, who knows what. But I think we'll shortly see that that was not at all the case. <clears throat> Number one, they didn't treat each other with honor. It doesn't say they pushed, they shoved, they yelled. But much more significant than that, Let's focus on something very, very problematic. The Sefer Chinuch, when he explains the mitzvah of Ahav Tolreach Kamocha, says this is a klal gadol Torah. What does that mean? Loving your fellow Jew as yourself is one of the key principles of the Torah. It's one of the themes that runs throughout all the mitzvahs. It's a theme that you'll see over and over and over. And the Sefer Chinuch, when explaining this mitzvah, quotes a famous concept, Zeklal gadol b'Torah. This is a great theme in the Torah, and again, a theme that runs throughout all the mitzvahs. Well, here's the problem. Who was the author of that statement, Zeklal Gadol Torah Vahapta Recha Kamocha? Zu Rebbe Akiva. Rebbe Akiva, the Rebbe of the 24,000 Talmidim, taught this as a great principle of the Torah. He taught Vahapta Recha Kamocha, love your neighbors as yourself. I believe it would be foolish to assume that these people were rude, obnoxious, pushing, shoving, quite the opposite. They were fine, tremendously refined. 
and they practiced exactly what their Rebbe told them, but there was something that was lacking, they didn't treat each other with honor, and I'd like to focus on what that was and see if we could better understand what in fact Pshat and Nishazal is. And to do that, let me share with you an interesting observation. Dazakanim quotes a Torah's Kanim, it says as follows, This principle, love your neighbor like yourself, it's a great principle, very important, but there's one that will take you to even greater heights. If you want to excel in Midos, if you want to learn to really treat people appropriately and properly, is far, far eclipsed by another principle in the Torah. And what's that? That man was created in Hashem's image. And the Dasa Kingdom quotes this Torah's condom and says, Rabbi Kiva holds Ben Azai says, uh-uh, there's a principle that will take you even further. There's a principle that's even more significant that will take you to greater heights of Ben Adam Lachavero between man and man, just remembering that my friend was created in the image of Hashem. And I heard my Rebbe, Shiva Zatzal, ask the following question. That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Could you imagine if we actually practiced loving my neighbor as myself? The same regard, the same way I want everything good for me, the same way I want everything to happen for my best. If I could actually marshal that sense, marshal that feeling to another human, could you imagine my Ben Odom I would treat people with such regard, with such care, with such concern? And I'll give you a simple muscle. Let's assume you're back in the dorm. And you have a roommate. And it's 3 o'clock in the morning. And suddenly you hear a roommate. He says, Maishi. What? what? Maishi, what? I'm sleeping. What? What? Maishi, what? What, what? what is it? What is it? Maishi, I'm thirsty. So go get yourself some water. No, but Maishi, I'm tired. So go to sleep. No, but Maishi, I'm, I'm, I'm thirsty. So what do you want from me? Could you imagine if your roommate woke you up saying that he's thirsty but too tired to get out of bed, and then said to you, could you please get me a cup of water? I believe, if you're honest, you'd probably throw a shoe at the guy. I mean, come on. <clears throat> Listen, I'll do you a favor, I'm a balches, but you want me to get out of bed because you're too tired to get out of bed? But if a person really took the concept of a hafdarech to its fullest, to its absolute extreme, that would be a common reaction. So even though we're not there, and I understand that, how could someone say that there's a principle greater? There's a good example. You know, I'm not a one to quote that often, Hasidish Yisvarim, but there's a Sefer, Tver Shlomo And he quotes a Hasidish Rebbe of David Melozheva, and Rav David Melozheva was known as the Ohev Yisrael. And Rav David Melozheva once spoke out, and he said, How dare you call me an Ohev Yisrael? How dare you say I'm a lover of Jews? It's not true because I love my children even more than I love anybody else. If I was a true o of Yisrael, I would love every Jew as I love my children. It's not true. I'm not considered o of Yisrael. Now that's a wonderful level to hold yourself to. That's a wonderful demand. But the point is that if we really mustered the true strength and really mastered what could be a greater principle, what could bring a greater a person to greater heights, how does Ben Azai say that just this concept, knowing that Hashem, this person created in Hashem's image, will bring a person to greater heights, it sounds difficult to understand, and that was my Rebbe Roshiv Zetzal's question. And to answer this question, I'd like to share with you a very interesting mushal. The tricky part of the mushal is, you have to find someone who in your world is a hero. I want you to take someone who in your world is a superstar, I mean really someone you've always dreamt about speaking to, meeting, someone who's really, really up there. Alright, so I'm going to pick someone. Let's assume it's uh, Rav Chaim Kanievsky. Okay, 
Imagine the following. I get a phone call from Eretz Stroll. <clears throat> Chaim Kanevsky is coming to America. He needs a place to stay. He asked to stay in your house. Oh my goodness. The God of is staying in my house. Oh my goodness. I would clean. I would sweep. I'd, <clears throat> weeks ahead of time, we plan what I'm going to say to the God of going to. The minute Rav Chaim comes into the house, what could I do? What could I help? How could I? What could I do? I would stand there like a waiter, stand there all day. It'd be, oh my goodness. Could you imagine how I would act? Why? Because do you know who this person is? This is a God of Maybe the God of And this is a tremendous. Why would I treat him differently than I treat anyone else? Because there's such an overwhelming sense of respect. And my Rebbe Shiva Zatzal explained, that's what Ben is teaching us. The Havdarach HaKamocha is great. Love your neighbor like yourself. It's wonderful. But if you fully perceived one concept, this person was created in the image of Hashem. Oh my goodness, a human being created in the image of Hashem. Do you know how much honor and much respect, you know how much regard I would have to have? This person would become that superstar, would become that hero, and any chesed would be easy for me to do. Putting away my own self-interest for the other person would be simple. Why? Do you know who this person is? I don't see myself. I don't look in the mirror, hopefully, all day. But I do see his face. And when I see his face, I know that's the image of Hashem. Oh my goodness. And explains Ben Azai, that concept will propel a person to greater heights. And I got a chance to see this in my own life in a very interesting way. I was a high school rebbe for many years, and there was a fellow in my shir who was a Matsuyan. The fellow was into learning and smart, on the ball, attentive, but also a, a mensch. He knew how to speak, and he was a good-looking fellow, tall. He had all of my... The guy was like excellent, extraordinary fellow. Okay, anyway, about halfway into the year, <clears throat> something happened in the dorm, and Anhala decided they want to throw him out of yeshiva. And I was aghast. The guy's a Matsuyan. I, I, I went into Rabbi Duda to the shiva's office, and I, I said, how could this be? How could? And I started talking about the fellow's milas and how good he is, etc., etc., and I walked out. The word quickly spread around the yeshiva that I went in to defend this guy, and I can't describe the result. It seemed like every single guy in the yeshiva, from the ninth grader to the kolel, to the base medrash, to the rebbeim, came over to me and said, what are you talking about? The guy's a manuval, he's a mochotzev, he's the worst. I said, wait a minute, I don't get this. What I'm hearing from so many people is this guy is the worst imaginable, heinous, I don't know what, but that's not the guy I know. And it took me a little while to piece it together. You see, he respected me for whatever reason. We had a very good relationship. And for the Rebbe, he acted in a very different way than he acted in the dorm. In the dorm, a different set of clothing came out, a different coloring and he acted in a very different way there than he acted with me in Sheer. And what I was seeing was one version of him. What they were seeing was a different version. But this is a classic example. He respected the Rebbe, acted in a certain way, because that's the regard. And what Medaza is teaching us is this is a fundamental yesod. If you want to work on Ben Adam L'chaveru, if you want to treat people <clears throat> properly, this single concept, this person I'm speaking to is worthy of tremendous respect. How much respect? As much respect as anyone created in the image of Hashem. Beyond my belief. Beyond anything I can imagine. And I believe this is also the answer to the students of Rabbi Kiva. And I'll explain to you what I mean. When I was a kid, I have a background in martial arts, and I was very involved as a kid. I remember I once went to a karate tournament. And I saw there was a group of black belts sitting around in a circle, and they were talking, and I overheard part of the conversation. Part of the conversation sounded like this. So-and-so, so, oh, so-and-so, what? Come on, he can't punch his way out of a paper bag. Yeah, he's a loser. Come on. Here was the problem. I knew the person they were describing. I knew him well. 
And the person that they were describing was a black belt. The fellow probably could have had his hands registered with the police department as a, as a lethal weapon, yet they were describing him as a, as a wimp. He can't punch his way out of a wet paper bag. And it took me a little while to process the why. And the why is that this group of fellows were second-degree black belts, and they were talking about a first-degree black belt. It's true that fellow compared to anyone else might be a lethal killer, but to their league, he was just eh, nobody and nothing, and I believe that's a tremendous concept. And that concept is we tend to judge people according to our level, and I believe that's exactly the answer to the students of Rebekiva. They treated each other with regard, they treated each other with chesed, they forgot one little point. If I treat my friend as if he's a mensch, but he's more than a mensch, he's a very, very chasha person, he's a tamachacham, he's a gadol, no longer can I just treat him like a mensch. And if I treat him nicely, but I'm not no way covered kafi who he is, then there's a problem with me. The Marsha says, And if you'd like to understand exactly what I'm saying, I'll give you a very simple mushal. When I was newly married, my, uh, my wife's uncle Shmuel was very friendly, and he told me a fascinating story. He told me that he was a Talmud of my Rebbe, the Shiva Zetzal, many, many years ago. Now, my Rebbe, Rebbe Leibowitz Zetzal, the Shiva of the Chavetz Chaim Yeshivas, was a 24-year-old man, and his father was the Rosh Shiva. And uh, his father took ill. His father asked him to say the Blachia. The Rosh Shiva was saying Blachia. And his father died. At 24 ye- years of age, there was young Rav Henoch Libowitz. Rav Aaron Cutler told him, you should take over the Shiva. And at that age, he became the Rosh Shiva. And Uncle Shmuel said to me he had a problem. Because he grew up together with the Rosh Shiva. They were buddies. They used to play handball together. He couldn't possibly <coughs> speak to him like a friend, because now he's a Rashiva. On the other hand, he can't possibly speak to him like a Rashiva because he's his best friend from childhood. He told me that for six months, he basically didn't talk to Rashiva. Six months, he couldn't, he didn't talk. I don't know if that was the right approach, but that's the point. And when your friend is a Gadol Bisral, it's not enough to treat him like a mensch. You have to remember the position that he occupies. You have to remember who he is. And I dare say that's shot in the students of Rabbi Kiva. If you would have seen them, they were polite, they were nice, they probably had chesed committees, they did all kinds of haftarecha kamocha, and they forgot one thing. Their friend is not just their friend, their friend is a gadol bisrol. And if your friend is a gadol bisrol and you treat him like a mensch, you're way, way undercutting him. And if you want to understand this properly, you have to understand that people on that stature, they say that when Moshe would call people, they would stand up. They would stand up because... Ramosha, God of Israel is calling. Even though the person who might have been speaking to Ramosha was on his level. <clears throat> two princes, two heads of countries meet each other, they treat each other with honor, with accord, far different than two regular people. And I believe that's the answer to Rekiva students. As much as they treated each other nicely and kindly, and they forgot one little step, my friend is a tremendous Tamachacham. My friend is worthy of honor way, way beyond a regular person. They treated each other like friends. They forgot this element. And because that was the Masora, they were bringing over the transmission of the Torah to the rest of the generations. There would have been a lack of covered Torah, a lack of treating the Torah with respect. And Hashem had to stop, restart it from a whole new generation. And I believe that this concept is very, very important and very, very significant and has many, many lessons to us. First of all, on the simplest level, <clears throat> understanding that if I happen to be Zochet, have a friend who's a Tamachacham, it's great, it's wonderful, but I have to remember who he is. 
And it means in plain, simple language, if it's a rov of a shul, or a Rosh Hashiva, or a Rebbe, I have to remember, he could be my friend. Maybe I can learn as well as him, but that doesn't excuse me for treating him just like one of the guys. I have to remember that, I have to understand that. And when you see the way Gedolim treat each other, you see that even though they're equals, they treat each other with tremendous, tremendous regard. I can tell you from my own life. I was a Talmud of the Rashiva Zatal, and then I learned in Rochester for quite a number of years, and I noticed something interesting. Rabbi Dvirut and Rabbi Harris, who also my Rebbeim, from the time I began saying high school shir, called me Rabbi Schaefer. Now I'm a Talmud of theirs. I'm much younger. I go to them for eight. I go to them for advice. I, <clears throat> they call me Rabbi Schaefer. Why? Because I occupy that position, and that's who I, and they, it's an incredible concept. Because if your friend is your friend, that's wonderful. But if your friend is a Rav of a shul, your friend is a Tamachachim, your friend occupies that position, you have to treat them with honor. And surely, especially if it's the Rav of your, that you ask Shilas to, etc., you have to remember this, and it's an important concept. Let me share with you why this concept is so applicable right now. It's a Mishnah in Sota, Be'ikva Mashiach Chutzpah Yisage. In a time of Mashiach, Chutzpah will increase, it'll spread. And I believe there's no truer definition of our generation than that expression. It is the generation of disrespect. I cannot even describe. My hair stands on end when I hear the way people talk one to another. Let me just give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. I remember back in the 1980s, I heard Ed and Bob. I was on a bus. And Ed called Ed, Bob called Bob. They're talking back and forth, Ed and Bob. I noticed there was a little difference in age, in fact, quite a considerable difference in age. But Ed, what do you think? Bob, what do you think back and forth? And after following the conversation a little bit, I realized something intriguing. Ed was the father of Bob. But, you know, I don't want that age gap, the generation gap, so we call each other by the first name, Ed, Bob. My friends, that ain't quite the way it's supposed to be. In the 1950s, in the United States of America, nurses were trained. When a doctor walks in the room, you stand up. Why? Because he's a doctor, a man of learning, a man of stature. You treat him with respect. I remember very vividly in New York City when the cops were being called, excuse my expression, pigs. And Ed Koch, whatever you may think about him, coined the phrase New York's finest. Because you have to respect the institutions, you have to respect authority. We live in an egalitarian society. We're classless. But classless isn't supposed to mean that we don't have any class. Classness is supposed to mean we're all on the same level. But what that is interpreted to mean is we're all on the same level. So we argue with all. We argue with our lawyers. We argue with our doctors. We argue with our rabbis. Whatever. And the disrespect that's bantied about is so incredible. As an illustration, my wife's friend was told her, you know, my kids, they're wonderful children, but... They just, I don't know, they just don't have the respect. I remember, they, they'd speak so differently to me than, than I spoke to my mother. Just the other day, my, my wife's friend said, look, my, my daughter was doing homework, and she said, Mommy, could you please come here? My wife's friend said, I would never say that to my mother. I should ask my mother to come to me. If I needed help, I'd go to her. Ladies and gentlemen, the problem in today's world is not, Mommy, could you please come here and help me with my homework? And if you watch the way parents talk to children, children talk to parents, people speak to each other, it is absolutely abhorrent. The lack of respect is just incredible and beyond description. And if you want an illustration of this, I have the simplest illustration. You have to be a little bit young 
or younger <clears throat> to do this, but here is my illustration. The next time <clears throat> your father or your mother walks in the room, I want you to do something. I want you to stand up. Right? Next time your father or your mother <clears throat> walks in the room, I want you to, if you're sitting, I want you to stand up. But stand up doesn't mean, stand up means stand up. Now, <clears throat> you may find it a little strange. What the Queen of England walking out, standing up? Ironically, it's halach and shulchan aruch. It's mitzvah seideraisa. We're obligated to stand up. Why? Because I'm obligated to treat my father, my mother with covered. I'm obligated at least once a day to stand up to my full height because my father, my mother walked in the room. And you know what happens to people today when they're asked to practice this musr exercise? I'm like, it's so strange. I mean, my father, my dad. I mean, I'm not. I gotta stand up for him. Like, like he deserves covered. I mean, come on, he's just my dad. Exactly. He's your dad, and he's loving, and he's giving. That's wonderful. That's great. But the Torah obligates you to treat him with respect. And there's such disrespect in our world, we don't even know what the words mean. We don't even realize how far we've gone and how much we've lost in terms of respect for another human being. And I think especially this is Nogea in our current situation. COVID-19, most of us are in isolation and for the first time, maybe in our lives, we're in close proximity <clears throat> with a limited amount of people. And when I say close proximity, I mean close proximity. If you live in Muncie, Baruch Hashem, <clears throat> houses a little bit bigger. <clears throat> but no matter how you slice it, a family contained within that building for the entire day and you don't leave, there's going to be a lot of rubbing <clears throat> on each other's nerves, a lot of mm, friction, a lot of things going on. And I believe this is a perfect opportunity to recognize this one concept. If you would like to work on your relationships, if you would like to improve your relationships, Ben Aze is teaching us a fundamental yesod. is great. Be considerate, be kind. And you should, no question about it. But just do this one simple exercise. Before I open my mouth, say to myself the follows. This person was created in the image of Hashem. I tell this to husbands all the time before they come home from work in the good old days when you used to go outside the house and come back to work. Before you come into the house, say to yourself, my wife is created in the image of Hashem. Oh my goodness, I have to be careful. The the regard I have to treat her with, the the honor I have to treat her with. And Ben Azai is teaching us the Yisod. That Yisod is that that concept goes much further. Why? Because what happens is when you treat a person with respect, suddenly it's so much easier to be careful about what you say. Suddenly it's so much easier to treat that person appropriately and properly. And suddenly you're not stepping on their toes, and you're not being inconsiderate because, oh my goodness, do you know who I'm speaking to over here? It's a kind of interesting thing that we human beings are incredibly sensitive to our own honor, <clears throat> the way people speak to us, but we're never nearly as sensitive as what we say to others. And if I just keep this one concept in the front of my mind, this person is created in the image of Hashem. Oh my goodness, the honor, respect due to them is beyond description. But you have to work on it, you have to think on it, you have to really <clears throat> dwell on it till it becomes part of your operating mode, <clears throat> part of your conscious thinking. And when you do, it changes the way you act. And I'd like to share with you that this has many, many ramifications, <clears throat> but especially in marriage. I want you to Badkin say that the greatest tool for Shalom Bayes is the telephone. The telephone. And he described why. <clears throat> Husband and wife having words with each other. <laughs> Suddenly she picks up the phone. Oh, hi. hi. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Oh, sure. Absolute. sure. Okay. Oh, it's so nice. It's so sweet. Okay, great. I'll take it there. Right. Hangs the phone. <clears throat> oh, madam. One second. What happened? 
And the answer is, what happened is, when other people are listening, we put on our best behavior. We kind of let our hair down when no one's around, but we act differently when people are watching. And even though he was being facetious, and maybe funny, which I wasn't, the point, though, is that when you act differently in front of other people, you treat them with respect, and that type of respect that you treat others, oftentimes you don't treat your own family with. John Gottman is a researcher of marriages, and he has done study after study after study that demonstrates exactly this point. He explains he takes two people and puts them in chairs and asks them to have conversations, and he videotapes and carefully monitors the conversation. He says invariably he'll take the husband and the wife, ask them to speak. Then he'll ask the wife to leave, bring another woman in, ask the husband to speak to the other woman. Then he'll ask the husband to leave, bring the wife back in. Invariably, couples speak to each other with far more disrespect, far less regard than they do to strangers. And more than that, he says couples, when speaking to each other, will shoot each other down and argue with each other much more quickly. He explains that a person is much more apt, much more likely to accept the opinion of an utter stranger than their spouse. Why is that? It's natural. We get accustomed. We get used to it. But I want to share with you that's one of the most devastating things to a marriage. It has to be respect and then love. The Rambam gives us a formula. He, the husband, has to respect his wife as much as he respects himself, love her more than he loves himself. She has to treat him with exceeding amounts of respect. Love is essential for the success of a marriage, but respect comes first. And once the respect starts eroding, everything starts breaking down, and suddenly they're no longer a couple in love, suddenly they're in very, very different places. But it requires thinking about it. It requires focusing on it. It doesn't happen naturally. It happens by working on it, by thinking about it, by contemplating this person creating an image of Hashem and working on the respect. And I'd like to share with you something that I find very, very profound. In the 1980s, there was a very clear clinical manner for dealing with alcoholics. It was basically accepted that alcoholics are pathological liars. They have immature personality defenses. As a group, they're out of touch with reality. And the only way to deal with an alcoholic is to break down their pathological defenses. And that's typically what they would do. They'd have interventions, a whole family would gather, and every friend would say, you're an alcoholic, no, I'm not, you are, you are, you are. And they're very, very powerful interventions. And ironically, it didn't work. No matter how hard they tried, it didn't work. And amazingly, researchers started asking the following question. Why isn't it working? Why is the counseling seeming to backfire? And then they started doing a little bit of more research, and they made the following observation. You know, alcoholics come in every different color, stripe, stripe and flavor. Like they're very... Young ones and old ones, rich ones and poor ones, smart ones. I mean, they're they're about as diverse as the general population. So why is it, if they're as diverse as the general population, why would this single cohort of alcoholics be so immature, such pathological liars, be so resistant, so much in denial, when the rest of the population isn't in denial? And here's what they found. They found that it wasn't at all the alcoholics. It was the way that the counselors were dealing with the alcoholics. Let me explain to you exactly what they found out. Here's a little bit of Eitzah. How do you win an argument? I have a sure-fired way, a guaranteed way to win any single argument you'll ever be in. And this is the only way. A guaranteed way to win any argument you'll ever be in. Okay, what's that way? Well, let's start with the following. 
let's say you have an opinion and I have an opinion. Okay, your opinion is A, my opinion is B. Which opinion am I more likely to believe? So, if I am a human being like all other human beings, I believe my opinion, my way of thinking, more than yours. Meaning, assuming that we're equal, assuming that we're on the same, and even if you're smarter than me, I don't know, my opinion, since I thought it, since I kind of viewed it that way, my opinion just sounds a little bit better to me than your opinion. Okay, so watch what happens during an argument. You say A, and you say it very loudly and very strongly. Now, what happens when you say A is, I know B. And not only do I know B, but you're saying A strongly, so I'm going to say B much more strongly, because I know B is right. Now, when you hear me say B very, very strongly, what's going to happen? You know that A is right, so you're going to say A much more strongly. I B, A, B, A, A, B. And the only way to win an argument is not to argue. Because when you argue with a person, what you're asking them to do is to become firmly entrenched in their opinion. Have you ever seen someone in the middle of an argument, oh, you're right, I didn't think of it that way. Quite the opposite. Each party becomes more entrenched in their way of thinking, their opinion, because I'm begging for it. I'm forcing my opinion on you, you think otherwise. And guess what? The minute I say that to you, you're forced to shoot down my opinion, bolster your opinion, and you become more and more convinced of what you believe. Now, here's one very important observation. Any human being with an issue, I don't care what that issue is. It could be smoking, it could be drugs, it could be drinking, it could be gambling. Any human being with an issue knows very well that they have an issue. And don't tell me the person who's 350 pounds, can barely walk, can barely breathe, doesn't realize he has a problem with his being overweight. And I'd like to share with you that any human being who's reasonably intelligent and has an issue knows their issue, and yet also very much is motivated to change. And they recognize the danger to the health, and if they're a diabetic and they're not watching their weight, they know very well what could happen, they could go blind and lose their feet, and they've rehearsed and they know it, and yet they remain stuck. Why is it? Because we human beings typically are ambivalent. I have a very real motivation and reason to change. I'd like to live. But on the other hand, eating is something I enjoy. And stopping eating is very difficult. And there's a voice in my head that says, stop it, don't eat that. There's another voice that says, I want it. <clears throat> voice that says, go on a diet. Another voice that says, yeah, you failed so many times before. But this time I could see. No, you can't. Yes, you can. You can. Any person with an issue, I guarantee, has two voices in their head. <clears throat> One that tells them the danger, the damage, and they know it as clearly as anyone. But another voice that says, yeah, but. So watch what happens <clears throat> when the alcoholic in the 80s would come into the clinic. And the drug counselor, with his tremendous desire to help, <clears throat> realized that this person's in denial. And he doesn't get it. <clears throat> drug counselor would say, say, you must stop drinking. Do you understand the dangers of drinking? you understand? And what he was doing was presenting a very clear argument to the alcoholic why he must stop drinking. But remember that the alcoholic heard those words before. But there was a year but that he's heard many times before earlier. And the minute you come with a strong argument against that, <clears throat> he has to come with his own what they were doing was forcing the alcoholics to reinforce their, yeah, but, yeah, but I'm going to fail, yeah, but I'm not going to succeed, yeah, but I don't have a drinking problem. Meaning that conversation has been going on for years within the head of the drinker. He knows it very well. And when you come strongly in this demanding, <clears throat> domineering way, <clears throat> what you're doing is you're forcing him to repel you, you're forcing him to say the other argument, the reason why he's going to fail, he's not going to succeed stopping drinking, the reason why it's not so bad. And all they were doing was succeeding in causing the people with the substance abuse or alcohol abuse problems to reinforce the reasons why they should drink 
And guess what? That's no longer the mode that's used. Hazelton, which is Alcoholics Anonymous, that's the, the center where they teach the counselors how to train. They use a very different modality now. Would you want to hear the questions? The questions are brilliant. And the questions that they're typical trained to ask now are, tell me, why would you want to make this change? Or what might you need in order to succeed? Or what are the three reasons you feel you should change? How important is this for you to make the change? Do you understand the brilliance? They're not pushing their agenda because the agenda is well affirmed in the person's mind. They're eliciting it from the person with the problem. And when the person says it with their mouth, with their tongue, suddenly it sounds believable, suddenly it sounds credible, suddenly they're able to accept it. Now, isn't that ridiculous? Come on. They're mature people. Just tell us straight, let them get it, and they'll change their behavior, right? Except that they're human beings like you and I. And we're all so wise, so mature when it's from the outside in. But the minute you're talking to me, suddenly it's very, very different, and suddenly I become a very different person. If you'd like to understand the one you sowed, it's really very simple. When people experience themselves as unacceptable, they're broken, they're bad, they're no good, they have to fight against that. I can't accept that. I can't be no good. I can't be bad. So I'm going to reject that. I'm going to fight that. And the minute you come to a person and let them know in very clear terms what they're doing is bad, they're bad, they're evil, whatever that picture you're painting, they're going to fight it, and they're going to fight it very powerfully. They're going to fight it in a very real way. Now, with that being said, I'd like to revisit that fellow in my shear. Do you know what really Pshat was? I don't believe it was so much that he respected the Rebbe. <clears throat> it was something else. He knew that I respected him. From the day he walked in the shear, I viewed him with a certain set of eyes. A very bright fellow, very intelligent, very inquisitive, a real masmid. And I treated him with very real regard, very real respect, and he responded to that. <clears throat> because when a human being is treated with respect... When they're treated with regard, there's a sense of, wow, I'm acceptable, I'm good, I'm valid. And suddenly they shine, they live up, and they rise to the occasion. When he got to the dorm, that wasn't the message he was getting from everybody else, maybe for good reason, but the point is, he respected me, and therefore I saw one side, and therefore he knew that I respected him greatly, and because of that he shined and excelled, and that is probably one of the most important principles in any Ben Adam Lechaveru relationship. If I innately respect you, if I intrinsically respect you, you're going to perform, <clears throat> you're going to shine. If I judge you unfavorably, if I look at you with eyes of like, <sighs> forget about it, you're going to live up to exactly <clears throat> that self-prophecy. And my friends, this concept is very, very applicable. Obviously, if you have teenagers, if you have children, and <clears throat> knowing this and practicing and stepping outside your relationships and trying to watch yourself is a key to growth. But I'd like to share with you that it's not just dealing with teenagers, not just dealing with children, it's a lot more closer to home. And let me explain to you what I mean. Shira and Dovid. Shira and Dovid, okay. When they were going out, Shira was so amazed by his energy, his constant going, doing, it was like every day was exhilarating. And Dovid, on the other hand, whenever they were going out, he felt like a knight in shining honor. She was a little bit anxious, nervous. He always came and saved the day. And then they get married. And suddenly she refines that his ADD behavior is intolerable. He forgets everything. He forgets appointments. He forgets the baby if I didn't tell him what to do. And he, on the other hand, 
<clears throat> finds that Shira's level of anxiety is intolerable. In- I mean, come on, every, every, every Shabbos is, is high drama and she's the queen. And each of them spend the next 25 years, one trying to change the other. I cannot tell you in a marriage how much energy, effort is spent on one spouse trying to change the other. But it's that they're good. And it's really, they'll be more effective, they'll be better. And the odd part about it is, it never works. By the way, the reason why it doesn't work, <clears throat> because the reason she's that way is because by nature she is more anxious. The reason he's that way is because he has ADD, he's hardwired that way. And you're not going to change the nature of your spouse. The sad part is that we get married, and our spouse has a different temperament, different nature, different inclinations, and never does things in different ways. And I'm going to do my best to try to change her. She's going to do our best to try to change me. And we become expert at what our spouses do wrong. We see it so glaringly. I know how much more effective she'd be if she'd become calm. I realize how much more effective he'd be if he just <clears throat> wouldn't be so <clears throat> constantly spaced out. And we spend so much energy, so much effort, <clears throat> one trying to change the other, and it never works. It never works because <clears throat> it can't work because you're trying to change their nature, their temperament. But I'd like to share with you a much bigger reason why it doesn't work. What is essential for a marriage is a woman must feel loved and a husband must feel respected. I spent a lot of time in the marriage seminar and the marriage transformation boot camp. You go to the Shmuz site, go to the Shmuz podcast, you could listen to them. But the Rambam explains to us the sowed for a successful marriage. If a woman feels she's cherished, she's loved, she'll be happy, she'll be very, very filled. If a husband feels that he's respected, He'll feel happy. If they both do their job, they'll have a beautiful marriage. But a woman has to be loved. A husband has to be respected. Okay. Now let's ask ourselves the following question. What does it feel like when you're loved? Right? What feelings do you experience when someone loves you? So typically you feel accepted, approved, cherished. You feel very good, right? Good. What does it feel like when you're respected? Well, also pretty similar. Appreciated, esteemed, approved, also very good. Okay, very nice. What does it feel like when someone's trying to change you? I'd like to show you what it feels like. It feels like not accepted, not appreciated, not good enough. you got to get it together. You are broken. You're not good. You need to change. You need to get this together. You are not valid as you are. You're not acceptable as you are. You're just no good. And no matter how nicely you say it, no matter how sweetly you say it, no matter how many roses you put on top of it, when you say the words, you need to change, what you're saying is you're not good enough. You don't make the grade, and guess what? You're putting a very ugly face in front of your spouse. And the relationship is a bit like a mirror. Whatever face you put into it, you're going to get back. And couples care, I don't know why we're fighting day and night, night and day. Stop trying to change him. Leave her alone, and you'll see things become much better. By the way, You'll excuse me for being candid over here. I believe women are far worse. <clears throat> women are nurturing their caregivers. They love to help. And I can't tell how many times I've dealt with women who want to help their husband. be He's a good guy, but he can be even better. And they help and they help and they help. And in their attempt to help him, they try to change him and try to make him better. And guess what? <clears throat> it doesn't bode well. She doesn't succeed at all. And even worse, <clears throat> the relationship <clears throat> heads south. And on a regular basis, I've seen something very interesting. There's a certain mark in the marriage. It might be after 10 years, typically after 20 years, when the marriage was okay, okay, and suddenly, heads up high. It just changes trajectory, changes radically. And I have a little theory as to why it is. Eventually, the woman gives up. 
she realizes her husband, nah, he's for fun. I can never change him anyway. Forget the guy's not listening anyway. I, and, and she gives up. And suddenly the relationship changes. Suddenly he becomes a nice guy. Suddenly he's, why? Because he's not attacked. He's not constantly <clears throat> told he's not good enough. And suddenly he's a man. Suddenly the whole relationship changed. It's when she gives up trying to change him that suddenly the relationship takes a tremendous head upwards. And again, the reason is quite simple. Changing a spouse doesn't work. You'll never do it, but all you will do is wreck the relationship. I believe it's a tremendous lesson to learn from this Chazal. <clears throat> the students of Rebbe Kiva treated each other with tremendous love. Their Rebbe taught them, and they steigd in it. But there's a concept that goes beyond that. <clears throat> the concept of understanding my friend was created in the image of Hashem. They treated themselves <clears throat> with great chesed, but they forgot that their friend <clears throat> was the God of Israel. Much like Uncle Shmuel had to treat the Rashiva differently because, yes, it's my buddy who I grew up with played handball, but now he's a Rashiva. I can't treat. And suddenly he's in a different league. I believe on some level, Lonago covered Zebeze, says the Masha, what does it mean? The covered a Torah. They forgot my friend is a prince. My friend is a senator. He's a person of tremendous stature. I can't treat him just like a buddy. And I believe what Benazza is teaching us is as much as you have to work on Vahafta Rechamocha, and that will take you far. This single concept, realizing this person I'm speaking to is a human being, created in the image of Hashem. Hashem says, I would have created the entire world, everything, the cosmos, the planet, everything for that one human being. <clears throat> Imagine if Rav Chaim Kanevsky came to my house. The regard, the, oh my goodness, why? Because it's a person who deserves honor. Any human being deserves more honor than we would ever treat Rav Chaim Kanevsky with. Because any human being was created in the image of Hashem. And as much as we appreciate a guttle, I guarantee it's nowhere near the honor they should receive, nowhere near the honor that a regular, plain person should receive. And this understanding is something that requires thinking about, especially when you're in the context of a family, especially when in the context we let, we let our hair down, we become more relaxed, and especially when we're in close confines and we're constantly <clears throat> rubbing each other in this constant friction, you have to remember ever, ever aware of this idea. Have to work on chesed and being considered, and that's wonderful. But if I focus on one thing, this person's created an image of Hashem. So, oh, I have to be quiet. I can't interrupt the conversation. Maybe she's on the phone. Maybe he's talking to someone. I have to be very. Suddenly, I'm acting differently. And what the students of Rabbi Kiva, I believe, teach us is you have to remember this concept. Love is great, but respect comes first. May Hashem grant us the wisdom and capacity to put that into practice.